The Pali word that's normally translated as rapture is the word piti, P-I-T-I. It means interest or enthusiasm, a sense of zeal. It has the characteristic of happiness and the characteristic of delight and satisfaction. When rapture is strong, when it's been developed as a quality, then it pervades both the body and the mind with a sense of lightness and agility. There's a sense of gentleness and smoothness. Sensations in the body feel like velvet, very smooth, very easy. You may feel like you're floating in the air Or there may be a very active form of rapture, which happens sometimes (coughs) when it feels like the body is being pulled or pushed around, or the body sways back or forth or rocks up and down. In walking, if rapture is strong, then it can often feel as though you're walking on the surface of very rough waves, that there's no no stability or solidity. (coughs) You may have a strong sense of feeling off balance. It comes from the energy of acceleration. It's not actually a feeling like happiness is a feeling or sorrow is a feeling, but it's rather the precursor to that feeling. It's the interest itself, the coming together of all of one's energy. It's that sense of cohesiveness that produces that powerful an energy that it can move the body in all of these strange ways. There are five levels of rapture that are described, the five types, in order of greater and greater intensity. The first kind manifests often as chills or goosebumps or thrills. It's a sense of... No, not tonight. (laughs) Tonight it's something else. (laughs) It's it's a sense like the skin is crawling or (laughs) such things. The second level (coughs) comes in flashes, like flashes of lightning. The third level, the next level, is described as The feeling that someone could have if they're sitting by the seashore and they suddenly behold a huge wave coming towards them, there's this overwhelming sort of feeling like you're about to get engulfed, you're about to get overcome by that huge wave, and the feeling is sweeping you off your feet and your heart is pounding. It's very intense. And then the next level of rapture is called uplifting or exhilarating rapture, in which there's great lightness. It feels sometimes as though the body is actually floating in the air. It's sometimes even a feeling of flying through the air. (coughs) And then the last level, the fifth, is called pervasive rapture, in which this sense of exhilaration and cohesiveness and joy pervades every pore, completely saturated or suffused with this quality. 
when it is arising in the practice, it can be very, very strong. When I was doing intensive metta practice in Burma, I experienced quite a lot of this. Metta is particularly known for the deepening of the force of rapture because it is a concentration practice which deepens rapture and because of the great feeling that is involved in it of loving kindness and connectedness which also strengthens rapture. And there were times when I was sitting in a chair in my room and this huge rush of energy would come up through my body and I would be flung to my feet through the force of this or I would be rocking madly from side to side and making an incredible amount of noise. And I kept having the feeling that my friend who was in the room next door had decided that I had gone berserk and that I was throwing furniture around the walls. So in every interview that I had, since her interviews followed mine and I knew she was hearing all of my interviews, (laughs) I used to particularly make a point of bringing up my concern about the social etiquette of of the noise that I was making. My body would just go whammo, rocking and swaying and pushed down to the ground and pulled over to the side and all kinds of things. And I didn't like it very much even though the feeling itself was quite exhilarating, my sense of dignity was quite offended by having my body doing all of these things. And every time I would describe something, an Upandita would say, oh, that's rapture. I would think, that's rapture? (laughs) But it is. It's a very powerful force. to have all of that energy coming together, that sense of zeal. You know that when in daily life that's strong, when we truly feel inspired by something, for example, all of the, the intensity of confidence and energy that becomes available to us, that's the energy of rapture. According to the Buddha, in the direct teachings of the Buddha found in the suttas, there's one condition or one cause for the arising of rapture, and that is wise attention. That means putting effort into and wise attention to being mindful from moment to moment. It's that sense of care, of impeccability. This is the proximate cause. This is the condition for rapture to arise. And in the commentaries on the Buddha's teaching describe many, many ways to develop and strengthen this quality of joy, of zest, of zeal. The first of these ways is a process of recollection and reflection on the virtues of the Buddha himself, the qualities of the Buddha, the nature of Buddha mind, the embodiment that he represents of all those qualities. 
The first of those qualities is that the mind of the Buddha is remote from, it's secluded from all defilements. That he has completely abolished greed and hatred and delusion. He has a completely purified mind. All of us have experienced a completely purified mind at times for a moment or two or three or four. And so it is not difficult to sense what that might mean when it is simply the way it is, when it does not alter. There is no greed, no hatred, and no delusion in the mind. It's completely purified. The second virtue of the Buddha is that he doesn't act like what the commentaries call the fools of the world, who make a practice of vaunting their knowledge and their goodness in the eyes of the world, but in secret are doing the opposite. The Buddha, as I've mentioned before, is considered a completely integrated being. His life is all of one piece. There is not a question of fragmentation, of being together in one area and a mess in others. It is all of one piece. This is the second attribute or virtue of the Buddha. The third is that with the power of his awareness, he was able to understand that which must be thoroughly understood, and that is the nature of suffering or insufficiency or unsatisfactoriness in life that is inherent in life that through the power of his mind he was able to abandon that which must be abandoned, that is the cause of suffering or the origin of suffering, which is attachment or clinging. That he was able to realize that which must be realized, which is the end of suffering, the cessation of suffering. And that he was able to develop that which must be developed, that is the Eightfold Path or the middle way to the cessation of suffering. Then he is considered an extraordinary being because he discovered this path on his own, without a teacher, without any guidance. If you can imagine what it would be like to sit here, or in some situation like this, with no framework whatsoever, no guidance whatsoever, is coming in, trying to take a look at the nature of the mind, trying to discern a path out of one's own suffering. It's quite hard to imagine. (laughs) So you can get a glimpse of the power of mind that could have elucidated the Eightfold Path, the seven factors of enlightenment and the kind of perfect balance of mind that is brought about by the cultivation of those qualities, 
or the law of dependent origination to understand from moment to moment the nature of bondage and the nature of freedom, to see that linkage of contact of the senses and feeling and craving or wisdom. What an incredible mind to be able to pick that out out of the whirlwind of experience that we all undergo. And to use that power of mind in a direction that is committed to understanding that which is good for beings, that which is harmful for beings, and the enormity of the compassion that propelled him to exhort others to follow that which is good and to leave aside that which is harmful, to awaken others to the truth. And so he is considered, one of the phrases that's used in describing the Buddha is an incomparable leader. Out of that great strength of compassion. There's a story that's told about when the Buddha, just following his enlightenment and the first period that he spent in the vicinity of the Bodhi tree, (coughs) when he began walking, the very first person that he came upon came up to him and was very struck by his countenance and his radiance and said, you know, basically, who are you? Are you a deva, a celestial being? You know, who are you? Are you a human being? And the Buddha said, I'm not any of those. I am an awakened one. And the man said, well, that might be and it might not be. And he walked away. This happened over and over again in the course of his teaching career. And yet the enormous compassion just to present the Dhamma over and over and to leave it to people to take it, to accept it, or to reject it. And so the Buddha has given us our heritage, which is this teaching, it is the Dhamma, a clearly expounded way to experience the end of suffering in our lives. So that we do not have to sit down in a mass of confusion and darkness, trying to find the thread, trying to understand mindfulness and what it might mean, trying to understand greed and hatred and delusion and what effect they might have upon us, trying to understand the relationship of morality and concentration and wisdom. We have to manifest all of these things, which is our responsibility. But what a gift to have a framework, to have a path, a clear sense of path. It's an enormous gift 
even if one feels very deficient in the amount of wisdom you may have gathered thus far in your life, even if you feel incompetent as a yogi, that you're not the world's greatest yogi, and you're not suffusing the world with infinite loving kindness and being perfectly mindful from moment to moment. It doesn't matter. What is really essential is the sense of path. Because without a sense of path, there's no understanding of how to keep moving, how to keep growing. So this is the most important thing. And this has been given to us. And this is the quality of the Buddha, that he could elucidate it and offer it in a way that could be clearly understood, even this many years later. And so often to arouse this sense of joy, of of rapture, of inspiration, people do this contemplation on the various qualities of the Buddha. Doing the contemplation is said to arouse rapture, to arouse faith, to arouse gladness. And when these qualities are strong, then we can conquer fear. We can endure many, many things without pulling away, and without withdrawing because of the intensity of this energy. And it's said that if one does this contemplation, then one comes to feel as though they were living in the Buddha's presence. (coughs) So this is the first avenue for developing rapture. Second is the recollection of the qualities of the Dhamma, of of the teaching, which is really the essence, even of the recollection of the Buddha, Because the Buddha himself said that one who sees the Dhamma sees the Buddha. What is really important is the teaching. And teaching is considered to be what is called well-proclaimed, which means that it is good in the beginning, it is good in the middle, and it is good at the end. One understanding of this is that it is good in the beginning of the path, which is the development of morality or virtue, seeing virtue as the root of one's own well-being, that sense of moral integrity. It's good in the middle, which is the cultivation of serenity and concentration and insight. And it's good at the end, with the experience of what the Buddha called the sure heart's release, of perfect freedom, the experience of the unconditioned, or nibbana, the end of suffering. As we experience any level of happiness along the path, we develop a sense of rapture. It's an intense sort of verified appreciation. It's like being reborn even within one lifetime. The possibility of completely letting go and being reborn even in this very same body. That is the greatness of the Dhamma, its transformative power. The fruits of the practice of the teaching are considered to be visible here and now, 
which means that we don't have to rely on faith in someone else. We can experience the truth for ourselves. There's some story about a monk once coming up to Sariputra and asking him a question, which had to do with the Buddha. And Sariputra replied, in this matter, in this regard, I do not rely on faith in the Buddha. And this first monk was really appalled. He was very upset and went around kind of saying things about Sariputra, about how he had no faith in the Buddha and he was disrespectful and all of that. And finally, somebody came to the Buddha and described this incident. And the Buddha said, that was very well said, Sariputra. You know, on no account should you be relying on faith in me. You should be relying on the validity of your own experience. And for each one of us, the fruits are visible here and now. It's not something we have to believe in because somebody else said it. And we shouldn't believe in it because somebody else said it. It can be seen by a person in this very lifetime. It's not a question of doing good deeds now for a pleasant rebirth in another realm, in another time. And it's something that should be showing its effects here and now. There's a quality of the Dhamma which is called ehipasika, which means come and see. It invites inspection. It's a quality of the Dhamma that is worthy of an invitation to inspect it. The Dhamma is sometimes described as being as pure as a full moon in a cloudless sky. They say, for example, that if we tell people that we're holding gold or money of some kind, and actually we have nothing, we have an empty hand, we don't invite people to come and inspect it. We don't offer that invitation to check things out, to test the validity. If we have the goal or the intention of wanting to exhibit something beautiful to others, to gladden their minds, to make them happy, to offer them some sense of happiness. And what we actually have is something awful or horrible. What we want to do is cover it up. We want to hide it. We don't invite people to come and inspect it, to, to take a look at it. We don't go around showing it. And the Dhamma, in this sense, is a thing of great beauty. One of the descriptions of the holy life that's found in the Buddhist teaching is association with the beautiful, that which is beautiful in every way, in the deepest way. <clears throat> and so it doesn't suffer from inspection. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing tucked away that could not afford to be shown openly. It's flawless, and so it can be presented openly. 
It doesn't suffer by comparison. And so the Buddha is, I think, extremely noteworthy as a being who said, do not engage in sectarian arguments. Do never, he said, never argue about the Dhamma. It doesn't need to be defended. Simply present it. And never compare it to another system of belief. That's not the point. And many times when people would come and want to engage in some kind of comparative dialogue, he would not say anything. And afterwards would say something like, it is not I that argues with the world, it is the world that argues with me. It does not need to be argued over. And it doesn't suffer by comparison. And this is the quality. It invites inspection. As a quality of being onward leading, that the truth is realizable for every one of us. It can be directly experienced by the wise. And so there is a whole practice of recollecting and reflecting on these qualities of the practice, of the Dhamma, which again will lead to rapture, lead to a great ability to endure, to inspiration, leads to fearlessness. When the mind tends towards this realization, there is the sense of living in the presence of the Dhamma all of the time. And then the third reflection is on that of the qualities of the Sangha, which are those beings who have been committed to the Dhamma, who have entered upon the path, entered upon that way, and have established themselves in a way on that path that is not wavering, that is not reversible. Beings such as this are considered great fields of merit. When I spoke of the other night about the purity of the receiver, of the recipient of a gift, being part of the purity of that entire force field, of that action, (coughs) this is what is meant by being a field of merit. That as people make offerings or pay respects to such beings, they are fields of merit generating that force. I've often considered it quite interesting that in the way that the Buddha designed the the rules for the order of monks, there really could not be very much of a hermit tradition in Theravada Buddhism because the monks are not allowed to store food. They're not allowed to keep food. And so every single day they have to go out for alms or people have to bring alms food to them. And so there is a strong reciprocal relationship between the lay people and the order of monks that 
is very important. The monks depend upon them daily for their survival. And the Buddha often talked about how somebody on the path in that way who is wearing the robes and is symbolic of the Buddha's teaching has got to be deserving of the food that's given to them and that it is really a very terrible deed to accept that food that other people might need but who are willingly offering it to accept that food and not be deserving of it. And so it's a kind of obligation on the part of somebody who is receiving to be worthy of it. So that is the mandate, to be a field of merit. To reflect on the the purity of this commitment to be devoted to this way, to this path, in a fashion that is not equivocal. We'll bring faith, we'll bring rapture, and one will live one's life as though feeling the presence and support of the Sangha. The next reflection to arouse the feeling of rapture, the strength of rapture, is to meditate or reflect on the purity of one's own conduct, which I mentioned a little bit the other night. There's a strong feeling of exhilaration when we fulfill this reflection to remember the patience or the perseverance that might have been needed to restrain oneself or to to act out of loving kindness or compassion in a particular circumstance. When we don't keep the precepts or when we don't act in a way that is born out of loving kindness, then so often there is remorse and self-judgment and not an experience of peace. And so if we can actually live in such a way and we can call upon that memory as a reflection, we can stand firm upon it, then there is great sense of, of peace and of repose and of happiness. There's a story in the Buddhist scriptures of somebody who is a very intense example of this. He was a young man who had been fairly wealthy in his lay life, and he once went to hear a discourse given by the Buddha, and he felt very inspired by that and had a strong sense of spiritual urgency with a lot of faith. And so he gave away all of his property and all of his wealth to his brother and to his (coughs) sister-in-law. And he went and became a monk. He was a monk for some time and was very diligent in his practice. At one time, the brother and the sister-in-law became very frightened that this young monk would change his mind and would decide to leave the order and come back to the lay life and would reclaim all of his wealth and all of his property. And so what they decided to do was to hire these these bandits, these hired killers, to murder him. And this, this band of hired killers went out into the forest looking for him and found him at, sitting at the root of a tree meditating. <laughs> 
And they surrounded him and were about to kill him when the monk said in a very imploring way that he had not finished his task for this life. He had not yet become enlightened, and he begged and pleaded for his life. And they said, no. You know, we've we've come to kill you, and we're going to do that. And he said, I just need a little more time. Can't you give me a little more time? And they said, no. How do we know that you're not going to escape? And we're going to have to run after you and capture you again. And so what he did was he picked up this really huge boulder and took it. Thank you. <laughs> he took the boulder in his hand and he smashed both his legs. And so he was sitting there completely helpless and in excruciating pain. And the bandits were somewhat impressed with this. And they said, we'll give you 24 hours. And they left. And said that as he was sitting there in (coughs) excruciating pain, he began to reflect on his own virtue. He began to reflect on the period of time that had elapsed since he first became a monk and how in that period of time he had not harmed a single living being. He had dedicated his life to loving kindness and care for all beings and the practice of meditation. He had not told any lies. He had not stolen anything. And as he reflected on this period of time in which he had been so fully committed to the practice of virtue and service in that way to all beings, he became flooded with rapture so strongly that the feeling of the pain receded into the background. And he began meditating just on that feeling of rapture, which was suffusing his whole body and mind. And as these stories so happily go, as he was meditating on the feeling of rapture, he understood the nature of reality and he became fully enlightened. It can be very powerful. It can be very, very powerful. To understand the purity and the beauty of one's own virtue, one's own service and loving kindness. The next reflection is similar to that, to reflect on a recollection of one's own generosity. And again, it's not to imply that one should give, particularly with this in mind, because the best type of giving is giving, wishing for the welfare and happiness of others, or wishing for liberation from suffering for oneself and others. But really to understand the power and the joy just of the act of giving, and that we can take delight in it, in having done it, and there's nothing wrong in that. That even if we have just a little bit, we can give a little bit of that. We don't have to give magnificent gifts and and great offerings. Just to continually share, to practice that kind of opening. We can take a lot of delight in that. 
which will arouse a strong sense of strength and confidence and rapture. The next reflection is a very traditional one to recollect the virtues of the Davids, of beings who have been reborn in the heavenly realms, as being embodiments of generosity and morality and faith and loving kindness. And whether you believe in that or not, it doesn't really matter. It's having a sense of the possibility of an intense development of all of those qualities, whether it's embodied in another plane of existence or embodied right here and now. To really just thinking of those qualities and how beings can perfect them and what the possibilities are is very inspiring and arouses a lot of rapture. The next reflection is on the the coolness or the peace that comes from the cessation of defilement in the mind. I've mentioned it some other time that the Pali word is kalesa and that it's normally translated as defilement. And a more literal translation of that word would be the phrase torment of the mind. That is the mind that is full of craving, it's full of lust, it's full of anger, it's full of envy or jealousy. It doesn't take much, and it's no great surprise for people who have been sitting and looking at their minds as ardently as you all have to understand that those feelings are states of torment, that actually that's what they are, even though in our daily life it's much easier to disguise. When you're sitting here and there's nothing else happening and you're face to face with fear and envy and jealousy and desire, it's very clear what their nature is. They are torments. And we can understand even if it's from a single moment, what it is like to experience the mind that is free from those, that is simply present, that is cool, that is tranquil, that is accepting, that's allowing, that is mindful, that is alive, even if it is just for one moment to experience that state of purity of mind. If we can do that, and we all can do that and have done that, even though these moments may seem very fleeting, then we can understand why sensual happiness or happiness of the senses is considered to be a very inferior kind of happiness. I'm not trying to imply that the kind of happiness we experience in the world or from contact of the senses is not genuine and that it's not important and that it's bad in some way. We experience these things. We have the opportunity to experience these things because of very good karma rather than experiencing unpleasant sights and sounds and so on. 
And so they are signs of great good fortune, in a way. They're the consequences of having done good in some way or another at some time in the past, and they are very enjoyable. And yet, there is a quality to sensual pleasure, to contact of the senses at any of the six sense doors, which is kind of agitated. It's almost a sort of burning, feverish quality because the contact and the pleasure is so fleeting. And then there's that yearning instantly for more. It's a very different quality than the coolness and the peace of a mind that is simply present. It's not dependent on contact of a certain kind, of a pleasurable nature for a sense of happiness. It's a very extraordinary kind of fulfillment. That coolness and that peace. And to understand that invokes a sense of rapture, that this is possible for us, a kind of happiness that is not dependent on anything at all. We can be extraordinarily happy sitting here cold and hungry. It's amazing that this is possible for us, can bring about (coughs) this sense of cohesiveness, of wholeness, of interest, of zeal, of delight. That is rapture. The next way that's described to develop this quality and to strengthen it is keeping the company of people with great metta in their hearts, with great loving kindness, that to dwell in this aura of love and warmth and care brings about a strong sense of rapture. And of course, if one doesn't have such people in the immediate environment, the conclusion springs to mind of being such a person, which will invoke great, great delight and great rapture. And then the next is to be able to reflect on the benefits of the practice. If you read something like the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the sutta that mindfulness practice is based upon, it carefully delineates the benefits of the practice. That if you do this practice, if you observe the body and feelings and consciousness and the Dhamma, if you do it ardently, if you do it energetically, if you do it wisely, then you will put away all greed, all grief, and all anger. The beginning of the metta practice is a traditional recitation of the 11 benefits that come from doing metta. You sleep easily, you wake easily, people love you, you'll be protected in life, and it goes on and on. This is what happens. To understand that what we are engaged in will bring benefits, and to have the confidence 
that surely the benefits will come. It brings a great sense of rapture and delight in what we are doing. Then finally, the last way to bring about the sense of, of delight, of zeal, is to firmly and consistently incline the mind towards the development of rapture. <coughs> the sense of delight, of enthusiasm will arise when the kalesas, the defilements, are put aside, even momentarily, when the hindrances are put aside, even momentarily. And so one needs to put in energy towards being mindful from moment to moment. If we're mindful from moment to moment, that will bring about the power of concentration. The power of concentration will put aside the hindrances. So if we are fully committed to this task of being mindful, whether we are sitting or walking or standing or lying down, then that is the perfect way to develop and strengthen this quality. I want to speak tonight about a particular sutta that the Buddha delivered called the Nugahita Sutta. Nugahita is a word in Pali that means protection. And it's a discourse about various ways and means that are available to us so that we can protect ourselves. The first time that I used the word protection in a talk up here, I got a note from somebody immediately afterwards which said, that they disagreed with the notion that what we needed in our lives or in our practice here was a sense of protection. What the note said was that we had spent probably far too long in our lives protecting ourselves and that being in a situation like this was an opportunity to envision things in a different way so that we didn't think about protection at all. And we could think, rather, about vulnerability and opening, letting go. So when it came time for me to be writing this talk, I started thinking about that note and about the word protection and the particular way in which I was using it and in the particular way this person was using it in writing the note. I think the way that the yogi meant it, in the sense of what we have done so much of our lives, at great cost and consequence to ourselves, is to protect ourselves from feeling, to protect, to protect ourselves from being aware and actually experiencing what is happening, trying to shield or trying to deny or trying to deflect. And so it has had a great cost. The way in which the Buddha used the word and used it such delight and sense of invitation was in the sense of nurturance or support, proper caring and 
a sense of powerful commitment to be able to protect that which we have given our energy to, to be able to ensure its growth and development, to be able to follow through on commitments and protect that, honor that. There's a concept in Buddhist psychology which is the two parts of which are initial and sustained application. These are seen as two different qualities or attributes. What I mean by the word protection is the sense of sustained application, not merely initiating something, not just planting the seed, but taking the time, doing the manual labor of the sustained application. There's a word in Pali, two words, one is kalesa bhumi, and the other is panya bhumi. Kalesa means defilement, or more literally translated, torment of the mind. Panya means wisdom or insight. Bhumi means place of occurrence or field within something arises within which something arises. It's the context in which something happens. What I found interesting about Kalesa Bhumi, or the field or the place of existence of defilement, and Panya Bhumi, the place of occurrence of wisdom, is that they're identical. And that is the body and the mind. The body and the mind are the base for the occurrence or the arising of the torments of the mind, of the defilements. And the body and the mind are also the base or the place of occurrence for wisdom to arise. When the body and the mind are unobserved or unawakened, then it is the foundation for the arising of defilement. When that exact same body and mind are observed, and there is awakening, then it's the ground for wisdom. It's the same thoughts and the same sensations and the same sights and the same sounds. It is not something splendid and magnificent that is the ground for the arising of wisdom as opposed to the ground for the arising of defilement. It is absolutely the same thing, except one is observed, one is taken care with, and the other is not. So it's this sense of transforming the body and the mind from the place of defilement arising to the place of wisdom arising. That is the force of protection. So it's like owning a piece of land and either using it well or not using it well or cultivating a piece of land, neither doing this skillfully or not. If we do it skillfully, if we use it well, then we need different kinds of protection to ensure that sustained cultivation. And the Buddha himself used this agricultural example. He said that there are five categories that we have to observe to reap the fruit 
from this plot of land. The first is the most obvious and the most, it's the grossest in some way. And that is to fence in the plot to protect it from animals coming in from the outside. The second is to have the piece of land and to water it regularly. The third is to loosen the earth around the roots of the plants, and yet not too much, to loosen it just enough so that the roots can grip strongly, but not so much that the roots are exposed. And the fourth aspect of protecting this land and ensuring its cultivation and growth is to remove weeds. And the fifth is to keep away insects, which may be very tiny little bitty creatures, but which actually may have devastating results be of great harm to the different plants that are growing there. If these five are carried out, then we can very much enjoy the fruits of our efforts. So if we've planted a seed of meditation, we then go on to fulfill these five in order to enjoy the fruit and to live with our bodies and minds as expressions of wisdom and love and generosity, rather than as expressions of greed and hatred and delusion. The first of these, the most obvious, or the clearest, or the grossest, is called sila nugahita, which is the protection of morality or virtue. So to protect with a sense of commitment to virtue is like building the fence around the plot of land. Keeps away the wild animals. Or, in other words, it keeps away the outrageous defilements. Mm -hmm. So it protects us from suffering due to the karmic consequences of wrong action. You have a very firm commitment to morality no matter what feeling may arise at whatever strength, however much you might dislike or despise someone, you can be confident in the knowledge that you will not actually hurt that person. And so there's a kind of protection from having to suffer the consequences of going out and committing wrong action. It also protects us from a sense of alienation from others born from being the object of people's judgment or born from the sense of fear about how others might judge us were they to actually know. It also protects us from having to suffer <clears throat> from inner confusion and turmoil brought about by remorse and regret. So building this fence, having a commitment to morality, protects us from the worst kind of pain that we know, which is the karmic consequences of these actions and the feeling of loneliness and isolation from others and those intense and turbulent feelings of suffering within brought about by guilt and remorse. And it also functions, having this commitment also functions to open the door to a very clear path to freedom. 
This is from the Vasudhi Maga. Moral discipline is the foundation for the development of restraint. Restraint means not being driven into action by greed or hatred that may have arisen in one's mind. Restraint is the foundation for the development of the absence of remorse, which allows us to live without guilt and fear, without hesitation and confusion, and then allows us to die in that same way. Absence of remorse is the foundation for the development of gladdening. This gladdening is the lightness and ease in our hearts that comes from the simplicity that is ours when we live with this strong sense of, of caring for others. Gladdening is the foundation for the development of happiness. This happiness is one of peace and composure and strength. Happiness is the foundation for the development of tranquility. So we have the possibility of clarity and tranquility rather than the turbulence and the agitation that's produced by worry and remorse. Tranquility is the foundation for the development of concentration, being able to keep the mind steady and one-pointed and powerful and clear. Concentration is the foundation for the development of correct knowledge and vision, seeing things clearly as they truly are. Correct knowledge and vision, knowing that things are impermanent, knowing that they are essenceless, is the foundation for the development of dispassion or equanimity in all circumstances. Dispassion is the foundation for the development of the fading away of greed and hatred. The fading away of greed and hatred is the foundation of deliverance. So it's a very clear and direct path. This meditation on the purity of one's conduct to arouse the factor of joy is a very classical one. And there are many, many stories in the scriptures of people getting enlightened, doing vipassana on those feelings of joy. First do this reflection on good deeds that they've done in the past, and then when their being is flooded with joy, they begin to meditate doing vipassana and developing equanimity towards those feelings, watching how they also change and thus become enlightened. But of course, to do that, the necessary prerequisite is actually having some things to contemplate (laughs) so that you feel very good about it. And there was one time in Burma where, I don't know if I told you this already once or not in an earlier talk, but there was somebody meditating um, who, who seemed a little bit despondent and not very happy. The, the kind of joy factor of the meditation didn't seem very present. And Upandita said to this person in the classical way, you should go back and think about your sila, about your morality. And I knew <laughs> that this person 
was going to take that in a completely paranoid fashion <laughs> and think that they were being reprimanded for, for some obvious mishap. But in fact, what Upanditu was saying was the very classical thing to do, to not be meditating from a place of despondency or distress, but to fill the mind with that kind of buoyancy and radiance that comes from that kind of contemplation on one's own morality. So that's the first protection, to have that very basic commitment. A second protection is called sutta nugahita, which is the equivalent of having that plot of land and watering it regularly. This is equivalent to listening to discourses or reading books on the Dhamma, because that clarifies the path, and so it is a protection. It's like having a weapon. Instead of going into a battle defenseless, you go in with a weapon. It means to know the practical methods and to be able to put them into action. It doesn't have to be very extensive. One doesn't need to be a scholar or have a great deal of knowledge about the path, because that would be the equivalent of saying that one has to study medicine in order to effectively take a course of treatment. It's just not so. But it's very good to have an understanding, a theoretical understanding of the practice, because that makes one's path very broad. The Buddha used the example of He said, it makes one's path very broad, like an elephant's path walking through the jungle. Because what happens is that with this kind of protection, with this kind of understanding, we can see beyond a particular technique. We can understand that a particular technique, for example, the one that we've been following here, is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. It's a way of arousing and cultivating and then bringing into balance certain qualities of mind. You can describe those different qualities depending on your favorite list. You can describe them as the five controlling faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. Or you can describe them as the seven factors of enlightenment which Joseph will discuss on another night. Nonetheless, whichever way you describe them, it is an understanding of what is actually happening here. That way one doesn't become merely a technician or an expert in a mechanical way, but to truly understand what is happening. It's a great protection because it frees us from that kind of narrowness or rigidity or attachment to view that comes from not understanding the actual depth of what's going on. As people get attached to different points of view, so they also get attached to different techniques. Not understanding that there are many different methods to cultivate these, these same mind states or mental factors. And so it's a great protection to help us towards greater detachment. 
and make our path very broad. The third protection which is called in Pali Sakacha Nugahita is the same equivalent to loosening the earth around the roots. And what this means is having discussions with spiritual friends or interviews with a teacher or a spiritual friend just enough and not too much to be able to explore parameters, to be able to connect with a body of knowledge or a body of understanding that's based upon, but is not strictly limited to, our own understanding and experience. To be able to connect to a much larger body of understanding. This allows us to have a more enduring or even a more transcendent sense of balance because we can connect to something beyond our own immediate need. So, for example, if someone has been straining in their practice and has been working with a certain sense of urgency that has turned into tension and agitation, their own immediate need may be to relax, or to to be gentle, or to be easy with themselves. And I have seen people for whom this need was so pressing that it became easy to forget that it was the immediate need, it wasn't the entire picture. And it's true the other way around as well. There are people who have a lot of equanimity and things are not especially disturbing or distressing to them. There's very little sense of urgency. There's very little sense of power in the meditation. And their most immediate need is to develop that sense of power and intensity And if people forget that they're doing that in order to create a sense of balance, then they also may carry on for a very long time, defining the path as necessarily one way, getting more intense, getting less intense, doing this, doing that. And so being able to discuss the practice or the Dharma with spiritual friends, to be able to continue to explore various aspects of balance and a much larger picture, a much longer range picture, is a great protection for us. The fourth of these protections Samatha or Samadhi Nugahita, which is equivalent to weeding the garden, is protecting ourselves from hindrances by putting in mental effort to get concentration or to attain concentration. Of the Eightfold Path, this incorporates right effort 
right mindfulness and right concentration. And with this carefully cultivated, then we have the power in our lives not to be tossed around by different mind states that come and go. So it's like taking hold of our own lives and being able to direct it. And so it's very, very powerful. There's one discourse in which the Buddha gave a riddle. This is the riddle. One should not allow the mind to wander without. Neither should one allow the mind to stop within. A bhikkhu or yogi who is able to be mindful in that way will eventually be able to extinguish all suffering. I'll read it again, just in case you didn't get it. (laughs) One should not allow the mind to wander without. Neither should one allow the mind to stop within. A bhikkhu who is able to be mindful in that way will eventually be able to extinguish all suffering. So this is actually a little bit tricky, because if we're just supposed to stop the mind from wandering without, it may be difficult to actually do, to realize, but it's not that difficult to understand. Just keep the mind from wandering by holding it within. But if we're also not supposed to hold it within, and yet we're not supposed to let it wander without, it gets quite a bit trickier. It says in the sutta that the Buddha gave this four-line riddle, and then he, as they say, disappeared into his perfume chamber, (laughs) leaving his listeners very puzzled and bewildered. And they couldn't figure out what the riddle was about. So they asked a monk. There was one particular monk, named Venerable Katayana, who is the most prominent disciple for elaborating short and precise discourses given by the Buddha. (laughs) And he happened to be there at this time. And this is how he explained it. The first part of the riddle very much has to do with this fourth protection of developing samatha. He explained, if we just allow the mind to carry on through its normal pattern of conditioning, then it responds to visual objects and to sounds, to fragrance, to bodily contact, and to thoughts automatically, very mechanically. If we come into contact with a pleasurable object, (coughs) a tempting or desirable object, then the mind fills with greed, or desire, or attachment. If we come into contact with an unpleasant object, then the mind fills with aversion, or disgust, or fear. If we fail to know what's happening from moment to moment, not gaining an understanding into the true nature of reality, that means that the mind is veiled by ignorance, or it's in a state of confusion or delusion. The mind that's filled with greed, or with hatred, or with delusion, is the wandering mind. 
It's the mind that's run away and it's out of control. So the Buddha was actually at that time, in that part of the riddle, instructing his disciples not to allow the mind to be filled with the mental factors of greed and hatred and delusion. The question then comes up, do we then consider or do we regard seeing itself or hearing itself or smelling or tasting or touching as wandering mind? And the answer is no. We'll take an example. Say you're sitting peacefully in the hall and you begin to hear sounds. You hear bones creaking and you hear clothing, one article of clothing rubbing against another article of clothing and you hear creaking from the floor. And what's happening is that someone in the room nearby you is moving during the sitting. And the typical thoughts that may arise in the mind might range from envy and jealousy to sympathetic joy to compassion to impatience to dislike to hatred to murderous frenzy (laughs) and on and on. The actual sense process itself, which is one of hearing, is not skillful or unskillful. It's just bare seeing or bare hearing. It's after this that comes a series of mind moments of liking or not liking or getting confused or getting agitated. The point of the practice is to try to sharpen the mindfulness to the extent that the mindfulness is able to catch the hearing process before the mind states of greed or hatred or delusion can get strong and overwhelming. So if we simply hear, and we simply taste, and we simply see, then we don't say that the mind is wandering. It's the subsequent attachment, or subsequent pushing away, or subsequent delusion that we say is the wandering. So with diligent effort, careful mindfulness, and collectedness of mind, we're protected from the forces of greed and hatred and delusion. And we also, in this way, because we are so present and so awake, have the opportunity to develop wisdom. Being with the present moment and being mindful of whatever is occurring as it's occurring means that the mind is not wandering without. So it's not a question of not seeing and not hearing and not smelling and not tasting and not thinking. It's a question of not reacting with greed, hatred, and delusion. And so being as present as possible at the moment or close to the moment of occurrence of these different objects. So this is the fourth protection protecting the mind from wandering without, from getting embroiled in these habitual patterns of greed and hatred and delusion. The fifth protection, which is Vipassana Nugahita, touches on the second part of that riddle, do not stop within. This protection is the protection through insight, 
And it's especially connected with a meditative phenomena, which is known as nikanti. This is the phenomena of subtle craving or subtle clinging. And it's very sneaky. It's sort of like the little insects, which seem so innocuous, they seem so tiny. And they get into the garden and they destroy the entire garden because they actually have a powerful impact, however innocuous they seem. This subtle craving or clinging can be to peace of mind or can be to pleasurable aspects of concentration. It's very, very delicate. It's like if these insects were not only small but almost invisible and yet were capable of destroying the garden. As we understand more and more through the practice, through undergoing the process, that everything that we can experience within the body and the mind, even the most extraordinary states imaginable, are impermanent and unsatisfactory and essencelessness. They are impermanent as long as they can be known, as long as they are conditioned in any way, even if they are radically different from ordinary waking consciousness. If they are impermanent, they're necessarily unsatisfactory because they hold the seeds of change and destruction within them. If they can arise within the body and the mind, then they do not belong to anybody. They are not within willful control. And as we understand this more and more, that even the most extraordinary kinds of consciousness we can experience are impermanent and unsatisfactory and empty of self, then we become protected from this very subtle kind of holding on. So, for example, as we get for a period of time more able to focus on the object of meditation and that sense of right aim gets better and more accurate and we connect to the present moment's experience, then for that brief period of time, the mind becomes secluded from the hindrances of desire and anger and sloth and restlessness and doubt. This may last just a few moments. But in those few moments, there's a kind of comfort in the mind, which can be splendid. It's a very special kind of comfortable feeling. It's a very special kind of happiness, and it may be very new. And so there can be a subtle clinging to this feeling of composure, even though we see that it does not last. where gradually we penetrate into the Dhamma and we can distinguish, perhaps for the first time, in an intuitive way, the distinction between mind and matter. Or we can comprehend the interrelatedness, the sense of cause and effect. And there's an accuracy and a precision to the mindfulness, and it's very easy to get attached to that. You start thinking... Well, finally, you know, something's happening. My practice is really going great. This is the way it's going to be. 
And then there's a sorry disappointment. And then there's another way we get attached. When we take a strong interest, kind of enthusiastic interest in what's going on, whether what is going on is painful or pleasant or neutral, just that interest itself coalesces the energy of the body and mind in such a way that this particular phenomenon, which is called rapture, arises. Sometimes it's translated as rapture, sometimes it's translated as joy, sometimes simply as interest. And it's a particular type of energy and has lots of physiological components. The body and the mind get pervaded with lightness and agility. The person may feel like they're floating in the air, or they may feel like they're being pushed down to the ground or pulled over to one side. They may be swaying back and forth or rocking up and down. Sometimes the person may feel as though they're traveling on the surface of very rough waves, walking or sitting down. You might get goose flesh and a feeling of chills all over. You might see flashes of light that look like flashes of lightning. And there are all kinds of lists of the different kinds of experiences that people have from the force of rapture. Mostly, they are very pleasurable. Sometimes they're not. They come when, again, the mind is free for a certain period of time of the hindrances. And it's a very positive state because of that coalescing of energy. And it's very easy to develop a subtle craving, perhaps a subtle craving to the extraordinary kind of pleasure that's involved, or even, if it's not pleasurable, to develop a craving for the intensity. You know, at least something is happening, and it's very intense. And it's easy to get attached, to feel, oh, wow, this is great. So again, it's very subtle, because it is a positive state. So there's not a real delusion or self-deception involved, but there's this sticky kind of clinging involved. The same thing happens also in terms of catharsis. Sometimes there are huge energetic or emotional releases, which aren't at all bad. Sometimes they're, they're great and a great relief, but they're not actually the essence of the practice which is detachment and mindfulness, regardless of what is going on. And sometimes these things happen very naturally, and it's very easy to get attached, again, because they feel like such a release, and because they are intense, something is happening. And in fact, I can tell you from personal experience, because I was attached to this for a very long time myself. And I used to have sittings, a long time ago, maybe 14 years ago, 13 years ago, where between the force of rapture, which was coming up because I was very interested in what was going on and the actual energetic releases that were going on, where I was literally bouncing all over the place. And if I wasn't hurtling around the room somehow, (laughs) 
I really thought it was a bad sitting, and I felt very badly. And I only felt happy when something very major was happening. As soon as it started, I would think, oh, good, you know, this is going to be a good sitting. I'm really going to get rid of a lot of stuff, or, you know, I'm really going to have a great release. And this went on and on and on, and sometimes I was just elated because it was happening, and sometimes I was really despondent because it wasn't happening, which, of course, is not exactly the essence of the practice. And this went on and on and on, and I just kept doing it. And one day, someone said to me, I can't remember if it was Joseph or Menindra, but somebody said to me, freedom doesn't come from bouncing around, you know. I said, okay, that's right. And I just gave it up because I saw that I was extremely attached, even though it was very subtle, to having things a certain way so that I knew something was happening in my practice and that it was really going well. Over and over again, we have to remind ourselves that the essence of the practice is developing detachment and perfect equanimity towards all changing circumstances, however they might be. The same thing happens sometimes for people who go through different kinds of physical healing. Sometimes some very chronic ailments come to the surface, especially during intensive practice. And people do go through some intense healing experiences, which are quite genuine, and they're very positive. But again, you have to watch for very subtle clinging or craving, trying to manipulate the experience rather than having it unfold on its own. So it's the subtle craving for what's actually a positive state. This is Nakanti, and this is the equivalent of being stopped within because we're stuck. Any kind of clinging or any kind of craving, even if it is to the most subtle, exalted state of consciousness, is still craving and clinging. And so it is still being stuck. This is the meaning of being stopped within. The protection of Vipassana, which is the last of the five, is to learn how not to get stuck within, to understand and to remember that the essence of the practice is awareness. It's just bare awareness from moment to moment. It's mindfulness, observing what's happening without greed, without hatred, and without delusion. Just to watch and to know it as it is. To free oneself from this subtle form of craving is actually a big relief. Otherwise, there is a sense of lack of surrender which gets to be quite painful after a while as we try to manipulate our experience. So it's equivalent in some ways to being in a bus that's being driven by someone else and trying to kind of lean over and grab the wheel and keep pushing the driver out of the way because we think we can do it better. And it's very entangling and messy and tiring as opposed to just giving up and letting go and surrendering to the process however it unfolds, however it changes.
and actually enjoying the ride. So we are protected by our understanding and by our wisdom that whatever can be known must change. And so it is not the end. It is not to be clung to. So there are these five ways of cultivating the plot of land to the point of bearing the fruit, ranging from the most obvious, the beginning, just fencing it in with morality, going through (coughs) hearing the Dhamma, discussing the Dhamma, developing the force of concentration so as not to be scattered and spread out and driven by the different things that arise in the mind. And then finally, the most subtle, which is the protection of vipassana, being able to be free from any kind of movement of mind to hold on or to push away.